Hi friend, my name is Amy Joy and this is the Make Prayer Beautiful podcast. I recently finished reading the biography Reese Howell's Intercessor about a man from Wales who was born, oh I don't know, late 1800s, lived in the early part of the 1900s. And he was a man of prayer and a man of prayer like a high level intercessor but what fascinates me is I mean first of all I think he would have been a little bit hard to live with as in when he was in his upper 20s and not yet married and still living at home at one point he had done something it would be something on the scale of this he was going to a prayer meeting and didn't turn aside into the house where he felt he was supposed to And then when he got home, he just cried about it all night because he was so distraught for having grieved the Holy Spirit. That wasn't the exact specifics of whatever thing he had done, but it was kind of on that scale. Like something that you or I might be like, oh, sorry about that, Lord. (laughs) Help me to do better next time, moving on with my life. And so, you know, I'm reading this, trying to figure out if this was my son, what would I think about that? That would be really... um, you know, you're kind of like, are you emotionally unstable? How can we help you? You're really living under a lot of judgment narrative around God. So, okay, that's that was one of my first impressions. Next impression, he, uh, on occasion, would give a prediction. Like, the Lord has told me that this woman is not going to die. And she would be, like, tubercular, almost dead, Next day, she was going to die for sure, and then she wouldn't die. And they would be like, yes, we have broken through, you know, hallelujah. And But then three months later, she would die. And so then everybody would be like, well, you actually don't hear from God. And where he would be like, that was actually just part of the mortification that the Lord had put me under, that the I actually did need to be put to death. I needed to not care about what man thought of me. This was all part of the Lord's training. And again, listening to that, on the one hand, you're like, wow, okay, like do what may the Lord do to all of us, what we need in order to be his vessels. On the other hand, you're like, that would be really hard to navigate. (laughs) And if you're in the community, you're like, okay, here's the man who's supposed to be a man of God, but he's not prophesying truly. Huh? I don't know what I think about that. And so then it's like, where does discernment come in? This is, this is hard. I'm just telling you, this is, this book, I felt like it was continuing to kick my butt because I, I can see myself in the village being like, "Uh uh-huh, you said that the Lord said what? And why didn't it come to pass? And, and yet he felt like, no, I needed to go through that because at that point I had learned how to break through in the realm of healing. And then he had some pretty tremendous and amazing experiences of deep miracles where somebody would be really at death's door and then they would come back and be completely fine. And so what was more interesting for me was at the end of the book, he talked about, not he, but the biography the biographer told about how he navigated World War II and there were a whole lot of things that didn't seem as applicable to me because I'm not from England and this is now 
80 years after the fact. And so the events are pretty far removed in many cases, but it's, well, it's also been 20 years since I studied World War One and World War II in college. So whatever bits and pieces I remember from then, that's quite a while removed at this point. And, and yet in broad brushstrokes, there were four main initiatives that he and his people at the Bible college he founded really believed that they needed to pray into. And in each case, it went in a completely different direction than anticipated. And there wasn't really an answer for why. <laughs> uh, one of the examples was when the Nazis were going to go and take over Moscow. And they had made it to the gates of the city. And then for whatever reason, they just stopped. And there is some um, historical reasoning along the lines of it was winter now and they didn't have the right kind of fuel for their vehicles. And there, But what the people on the ground in Moscow said was they literally could have just walked in. <laughs> we had nothing left to defend. And and yet they didn't. And so then there's also the Battle of Stalingrad, which would have been a way for the Nazis to swoop down on Israel from the north. And so uh, kind of this big, uh, what would you call it? Cyclical maneuver? Cycle maneuver? Anyway, they're like a scythe that comes from above. And so they went to Stalingrad and that was a tremendous battle. I mean, that was literally like house by house fighting in that community. And the Nazis had almost won. And then at the end, they didn't win. Um, Also down in North Africa, there was an amazing story about how the Nazi war machine broke down there. And the story is something like the British had just laid new pipe in order to get water to their guys. And it was so newly laid down that they were flushing the line with seawater because fresh water was far too precious to um, use as a as a flushing agent. And the Nazis came across this line and they shot holes in it. And they were so thirsty, they started drinking um, and had gotten a ways in before they realized, oh my goodness, we've just had all of this salt water to drink. And so they broke only about 10 minutes before the British were going to break. I mean, it was that touch and go. And then there was a fourth situation in Salerno in Italy, where again, this would have been a disaster, uh, but the the allied forces were able to take what they needed to take in that case or withstand the invasion or what I forget now what happened. But those were the four things that were kind of like, here were these hinge points, all of these, of course, prior to D-Day, but they were all really specific things that the college had thought we need to pray into this. And partially I say that because it's amazing. Like genuinely, I stand in awe of the idea that this one college of 120 ish people who were there to pray and they didn't just pray like a sentence or two. They were praying five, seven hours a day, at least for these different things. They felt like, no, if there are men on the ground who are fighting, we are on the ground, but we're fighting in the spirit. So we are the, the prayer cover for the, the people who are actually fighting this battle. And so to see it play out, like, no, the people of prayer actually made a tremendous difference in the entire global shift of what was happening. And so I don't, I don't necessarily have a conclusion about this. I think there's a part though where 
when I was first thinking about this, there were hours where I would be walking and praying and just like a welling up of a wailing in me to say, Lord, where are the strong intercessors like what they had back in the 1940s? Where are these gatherings of believers? I don't know. And I wonder if part of the who oh, the real desperation around why there aren't intercessors right now is because there isn't clearness of ethics, but that's maybe the next message. So Lord Jesus, I just come to you kind of brokenhearted saying compared to people who are willing to pray in really desperate ways for five or seven hours a day, Lord, I, I'm not that strong in prayer. I would like to be, but I'm not. And so Lord, I'm asking that you would be the God who intercedes, the God who intervenes. We, I guess you are the God who intercedes, but the one who intervenes, the one who teaches us what it looks like to be um, pleading. I think about how it says of you, Jesus, that you ever live to make intercession for us. Like you are the great intercessor. And we think about Holy Spirit and how Holy Spirit, you are there and you are the one who prays when we don't have words to pray. <laughs> Thank you for that. We are grateful. Yeah, so we just give you praise. Amen.